0: Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. It's Houston Rockets Day on the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today as we engage day two of our team recap series, which again has no true rhyme or reason to when we're doing these things, other than we're going to try to semi-match when the articles are dropping on SportsEthos.com. Today, the great John Marcelles dropped a Houston Rockets article. Actually, it might have been yesterday, even. I may be running a day late on that bad boy. In any case, it's excellent. It's free. It breaks down how the season went, Stephen Silas's role in how the season went, And then the individual players. What does it mean going forward and all that good stuff? And it's uh, a terrific written compliment to what we're going to try to do here. Or you could look at it the other way. This is the podcast compliment to the written piece. I'm trying my best. In in a lot of seasons, I can't. uh, Our guys over there on the written side, I think last year, dropped a, a team review piece every single day. Might have even included weekends. I don't remember. It may have included weekends, which it really didn't need to because there's kind of no rush on this stuff. And so there was just no way that I was going to keep up. I think, I think this time around I can keep up. And it's kind of nice. It breaks things up a little bit. You know, one of these team review shows every two or three days, and we can intersperse it with playoff preview shows and. Lessons learned shows and we'll have NBA draft shows at some point and free agency shows or way down the line and all that and so on and so forth. But anyway, you're here, you're hanging out, it's Thursday? It's warm. It warmed up here on Thursday, like for real for real. That's going back to fun shirts on the pod. You may also notice those watching live on YouTube that I've added a pillow behind my back on top of the heating pad, to kind of push me forward towards the microphone, but also to uh, <clears throat> push the heating pad harder into my back. It's had, two, uh, it's had two results to it. Result number one is that the heating pad does seem to work better when it's being sort of forced up against me, but also um, it makes my whole back warm and I feel so sleepy. So I'm going to shake the cobwebs off here, getting into this one. But let's just dive right on in. First of all, uh, hello again. I'm at Dan Bespris on Twitter. Sportsethos.com is the website. Let's talk about the Houston Rockets. Uh, I have some things that I want to throw up on the board as visual aid on the live YouTube side. But that's not the first thing that we're going to worry about here. The first thing we're going to worry about is how did the Rockets do this year? And where do they stand right now? They were terrible. Really difficult to sugarcoat it. They did win four of their final ten ball games when the team kind of stopped full tanking and only semi tanked at the end of the year, just because they were locked into that. You're going to be with or you're going to be with the Spurs in some fashion. It was a little bit dumb, actually, that each of those teams won their last ball game. If either one of them lost their last game, they would have locked in the second worst record in the NBA. Then it wouldn't have had to go to a tiebreaker. But whatever. Both the Rockets and the Spurs won 22 games this year, which means. Maths, as we do. They lost 60 apiece. Woof. And for the Rockets, after drafting Jalen Green a couple years ago, and now Jabari Smith Jr., and Alperin Shengun is in the mix as well, and they traded for Kevin Porter Jr., and they've got all these young guys, and they were still just horrendous. They were the most difficult watch in the NBA which is saying something because we just did a show on Detroit two days ago and Houston was harder to watch because they were just awful at everything. And as John Marcellus points out astutely in his article, they were 28th in points per game scored. They allowed and allowed, 28th in points per game allowed, 29th in three-pointers made, and 30th, dead last, in three-pointers allowed. They did not guard the three-point line at all. No one on that team played any defense whatsoever. Alper and Sengun had a couple of really impressive runs, but ultimately kind of came back to earth. Kevin Porter Jr. had a couple of good runs that basically kept him in the fantasy value start bucket throughout the season. Um... I mean, he did. He was number, finished at number 83, actually. Um, and then there's a pretty steep drop-off before you get to anybody else. So, what do we make of the Rockets from this past season, and what do we make of them coming going forward? Well, I don't know that they can full-tank another year. You know, we just talked about it with the Pistons on Monday. Once you get your guy... You have basically two years to convince that guy that you're not a disaster of an organization. And right now, the Rockets are not doing a very good job. So, the... I think when you look at this team, and I I know I had to stop to pause and and ponder that one just for a second. I believe the Rockets, almost no matter what happens to them in this draft, they're kind of out of years of tanking now. Because they tanked for Jalen Green. That was the hardened trade year, I believe. They tanked for Jabari Smith Jr. And they tanked again this last year. It's three full years of tanking. Now... The way that maybe that statement doesn't fully hold water is if the Rockets feel like no one they've gotten in the draft is a true part of the future, which I think is not only insulting, and maybe it's right. I don't know. Maybe that is the tr- maybe that's the truth. Maybe Jalen Green and Jabari Smith Jr. Maybe these guys don't turn out to be. Like the guys for the future for them, and they have to just keep tanking until they can get the franchise changer, whether it's Wembenyama or or whatever. Maybe that is the case. I just I don't know that the the fan base, I don't know that the the media, I don't know that the players involved. How long can you expect teams to just be horrific without there being some kind of consequence? to your overall longstanding. It just becomes exponentially harder to rebuild a winning team when you've shown no inclination to do so. So in my estimation, you're probably looking at a Rockets team this coming year that's going to play their guys in a way that they hope will translate to a handful of wins. How Whatever that means. Does that mean they're going to win, like, 34 games? Probably not. That would be a pretty big leap forward. But maybe you could see them get to... Hornets level from this last year. Hornets won twenty seven games. Probably not going to see them jump all the way to Magic level. Orlando won thirty four. Uh, but I would think something in that like twenty five to thirty five range for the Rockets would be a pretty reasonable target. And then it comes down to who they get in the draft and who they bring on as head coach, because we've heard that they're interviewing all sorts of of folks. And you know, who they bring in, bring in, I think, will have some kind of bearing on on how the players turn out. But what about from a fantasy standpoint? Because, you know, I I, I hinted at it just a, a couple moments ago. From a fantasy standpoint, the Rockets were not an unmitigated disaster, uh, but not that far off from it. We're talking about a team, and this is where I'm going to throw the visual aid up for the folks hanging out with me on YouTube. We're talking about a team that had no one inside the top 80 on a per-game basis. Not a single player sat inside the top 80 on a per-game basis. Not one. They did have two players in the 80s. Shangun at 82, who was in real jeopardy of falling outside the top 100, but had like two or three really good games at the very end of the season to kind of save what was going on there. And then Kevin Porter Jr., who I actually thought played relatively well when he came back from his midseason injury. Of course, it caused him to miss 23 games overall this year, but he finished at 83, so those two guys were actually in a dead heat with one another. But what about the actual numbers from those dudes? shang 29 minutes per game, 15 points, 9 boards, 4 assists, a steal, a block, didn't shoot the 3-ball, 55% from the field, pretty good, 71.5% at the free-throw line, not great relatively high turnovers for a center, although one that they ran their offense through for stretches, but you'd certainly hope for better than a one and a half to one assist to turnover ratio. And then what about Kevin Porter jr. The other player inside the top 100, he was at 19 points, five boards, almost six assists, two and a half, three pointers, 1.4 steals. That was a nice little number for him. 44% from the field. So not a complete and unmitigated mess there. And Semi-fixed his free throw number, got it up to 78 and change, where that now became basically a net neutral for your fantasy team and not the negative that it was in the past with high turnovers as well. So each of those guys was also better in 8-cat than they were in 9-cat, if that's something that you're taking into your calculation. The other players that I think deserve at least a, a, a passing analysis of Jabari Smith Jr. finished at 143 per game on the year. He did play in 79 out of their 82 games, so from a health perspective, that was good. 13.7 boards, I like that. A block, one and a half three-pointers, that stuff all actually sounds relatively good. Half a steal, not many assists, but 41% from the field, 79% at the free-throw line. Simply unacceptable numbers from... Well, certainly the field goal percent, an unacceptable number from someone who was largely playing power forward all year. You can't be a power forward shooting 41%. I know he took some three-pointers, but not enough for that to be a thing, which does kind of make you stop and say, okay, well, all right, we know enough about this dude to know that he's probably not going to be a field goal percent behemoth at any point. You know, he's... uh." What did, he, what did he have? One year at Auburn, and he shot 43.5%. 42% from downtown, though, and 80% at the free throw line. So even if we think that over time, as he fills out and the shot profile improves, and he just sort of gets used to the NBA game, field goal gets up to 43 or 44, and free throw gets, gets back up to 80, maybe you hope for additional growth beyond that, Jabari Smith Jr. actually does have a pretty decent fantasy profile going forward especially if he can stay healthy again. And you know he's going to be a part of what they're doing in Houston because they kind of don't have any other choice. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. Boo! say all of your friends. You start to sweat. Compare prices across multiple stores in your area. Find the best deals on game day drinks and get back to armchair quarterbacking from, you guessed it, your armchair. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Where would I draft him next year? I mean... You know, you'd have to see an increase in both of those. And you'd have to see an increase in just general overall usage to really feel good about it. Over the final two months of this year, he's number 113, shooting 44 and change percent. So the, you know, the scoring was a little bit better at 14 and a half. Free throw was actually a tiny bit down over that stretch. But th- I mean, this is a pretty good look. If you look at the last two months of this year, it's a pretty nice cross section of, hey, what would Jabari Smith rank look like if he just improved his field goal percent and nothing else? Well, he goes from 140-something to 110 range. Was there any stretch where he exceeded that? The last month, basically the last 10 games of the regular season or so, uh, he shot 44%. Free throws were better at 88%. That got him up to 15 points per game. Still at one block, still around eight rebounds, all that stuff pretty much the same. But that got him inside the top 90. So, the calculation on Jabari Smith Jr., I think, is actually kind of a hard one for next year. I feel like it's relatively safe to assume his field goal percent does improve from 41. Maybe call it 43, 44. That's again where he was the last two months of this season. It wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for that to continue. Free throw, probably not in the low, in the mid 70s, probably not in the high 80s. You would assume that that falls somewhere in between. And so then the hope becomes that he does take more like 13 shots per game instead of 11. Because if you extrapolate this, and I know some of, you know, when you're looking at past month and you're comparing it to the whole league, there's a little bit of a small sample size thing going on where guys that are in front of him over a longer stretch probably wouldn't. If he averaged 15 and 8 with a block, three quarters of a steal on 44 and 80 some odd percent from the free throw line, that would be a top 100 year. So Jabari Smith is someone you have to look at as as a guy that we expect to take a step forward with an unclear idea of exactly how much and an unclear idea of where he would go from an ADP standpoint. We're going to loop back around. Don't worry, we're going to loop back around to what to do with Kevin Porter and Albert and Shangun. I'm trying to knock off the other guys first. Jalen Green, sadly, is an other guy. He was wildly overdrafted in leagues this year because he scored a whole bunch and he did it on a slightly better... Uh, efficiency mark towards the end of last year, but this season overall was just such a mess for Green. Super high-volume punt field goal guy, who also ended up as kind of a punt free-throw guy. That's not fair. Just a bad free-throw guy, not a full punt. Turnovers weren't great. Not many steals, not many blocks, not many rebounds, not a ton of assists. I mean, an, an acceptable number of assists, but not a particularly good range of them. And overall, what did Jalen Green do for your fantasy team? He scored 22 points on two and a half three-pointers. He was above league average in two statistical categories. He was basically right on the mark for guards in assists. And he was sub-average in rebounds, steals, blocks, field goal, free throw, and turnovers. Six out of the nine categories, he was a net negative to your team. That's just not going to get it done. Not going to get it done. So even if you like Jalen Green to take a step forward, it has to be a big one like a real big one, to go from top 200 range to top 100. I know the players are clustered there a little bit, but you just can't be a punt field goal guy and expect to make that leap at 9-cat. Now, you can play the, well, uh, what if we turn off field goal percent game? How far does he leap? And the answer is pretty damn far. He went from 200 to 125 if you're punting field goal. So that gets him awfully close, and you could maybe look at next year and say, okay, well, if I'm punting field goal again... And I think Jalen Green improves in, insert basically any category here, do his, maybe free throw percent, feels like perhaps the most likely number to improve for a guy who, you know, has a relatively decent stroke. When he's unguarded, I would think he ought to be able to hit, you know, a free throw length shot at better than 78% clip. So maybe punt field goal, You improve free throw a little bit. He wedges himself inside the top 100, but it is a, it is a, it's a stretch. Tari Eason is someone that we looked at a bit in the second half of the year. He was certainly much more interesting down the stretch last two months, basically post all-star break. uh, He was top 120 range on 11 points, seven and a half boards, one and a half steals. That was a really cool number for him. Half a block, 46% from the field, just 74 at the free throw line. He's close But he needs one more thing to be a 9-cat guy. Whatever that one more thing is, we don't fully know yet. It's probably not going to be scoring on a team that has Porter and Shangun and Jabari Smith and Jalen Green. It's probably not going to be assists when you're playing out of the small forward and power forward spots. It's probably not going to be blocks, although there's a possibility those could get a little bit better if his playing time is higher than 26 and change minutes. But I don't know that we can expect that to be the case either. The hope would have to be that one or both percentages improve for Eason in year two. He's definitely in that late flyer range, even already, as you're looking towards draft day. You're like, all right, we'll get to the 12th round. I might as well take a look at Tari Eason, because what if they give him 28, 29 minutes? What if they say, you're you're part of this, let's grow with you, And what if he goes out there and improves his field goal from 46 to 48? Or what if his free throw jumps from 74 to 78? These are little things, it seems, but would have a very large impact on him if indeed the minutes stay secured because we know he's a very good rebounder and a very good steals guy, and you just kind of need to add on to those things. So he's more in flyer range. And so uh, as as we continue to sort of... Our way through the Rockets and try to remember who the hell we've actually talked about. Um, no, Jabari Smith Jr. is the one that I haven't talked about yet. See, I'm not crazy. I'm losing my mind over here. I am crazy, and then I'm also equally not crazy. He's the one we haven't talked about yet. We talked about Jalen Green. We talked about Tari Eason. Jabari Smith Jr. is someone that. No, did we talk about him? Yeah, we talked about him already. What the hell am I doing here? Oh, my God. Get a grip, Dan. I think it's the heating pack and the, and the pillow. Yeesh. Oh, my goodness. So we talked about Jabari Smith Jr. We talked about Jalen Green. We talked about Tari Eason. Those are kind of the three uh, edge-level guys and where we think they may end up for next year in terms of expected growth. But what about the guys that were actually fantasy values this year? Not to say that they were value values because I don't think either one of them beat their ADP on a per game basis. Kevin Porter was at least close. Shangun was about uh, 20 slots back of his ADP. I think Kevin Porter was drafted, what, maybe like a half round in front of this? So that was basically a, a dead heat. But the missed games killed you in head to head, where at least with Shangun, he got in 75 ball games. So by totals, he inched a little closer to his ADP. But look, okay, fine. Like, in head-to-head, if you're taking to Shang-Gun in the sixth round, and this is what you got, you probably look at it and say, that was fine. And for Kevin Porter, head-to-head, you're probably annoyed. Roto, you're thinking, okay, this actually worked out all right. But what about going forward? That's the important point at, at this juncture. We've, we've seen what they've done. And for Kevin Porter, it was actually a a remarkably consistent season when he was healthy enough to play. When he was out there, he just pretty much sat between 80 and 100 the whole year. There were frightfully few peaks and valleys for him, which, I mean, in a year where there was almost no development in Houston, that's actually development. Light consistency out of a relatively young player who's being thrust into that larger role, that's development, that's growth. I thought Kevin Porter Jr. grew this year. On the offensive side, yeah, the steals were pretty good, but, like, look, nobody on this team played defense, so we kind of have to throw that out the window. But this is also possibly maybe a look about as good as it gets for Porter on a per-game basis because every year the Rockets are going to be adding more guys around him out of the draft, and then the guys that are already there are going to be asked to do more. Maybe that impacts Jalen Green even more than Kevin Porter because Green's out there in true Chuck fashion, but, like, Tari Eason's going to be asked to do more, Jabari Smith in, in I think, maybe the the most uh, bright example of this, most glowing example, is that he's definitely going to be asked to do more. And then Alperen Shagun is probably going to be asked to do more next year, barring the Rockets adding a center in the upcoming draft, which could still happen, and that would have kind of a trickling impact on all of these guys. There's a lot of, is Alperin, Shengun Nikola Jokic comps out there? And the easy answer is no, he's he's not Nikola Jokic. He's like, Jokic is in this, we see a big man that can pass a little bit, and then we are immediately like, oh, is this guy the next Jokic? Especially if uh, there's like any kind of phenotypical similarity. You guys can Google that one if you want to go down the real nerdy path but we're simplifying something that's not that simple. We can't just look at a Caucasian big man who can pass a little bit and say, oh, he's the next Jokic, because he's not. Shengun is uh, very strong at his base, but he's not as long as Jokic. He doesn't have the same touch. Maybe that's a yet, but Sengun's shooting a pretty dismal free throw percent, I think, is a decent look at something that's probably will come along a little bit, but I don't know exactly how far. And frankly, Shengun might, at least while he's on a team that's just freelancing like this, he might be uh, able to block shots at a higher rate than Jokic. And his rebounding, they're, you know, not too far off. Jokic is a little bit better there, but like from a passing standpoint, there's just, there's no comparison. There's no one in the NBA, Jokic is the best passer, probably at any position right now in the NBA. So comparing these two is just not fair. We know his defense stinks. Shangoon can't stay in front of anybody right now. And then the fact that the Rockets also can't keep any perimeter defenders in front of them is just curtains. So he's standing back there just getting run over by everybody coming his way. Next year, I think, is going to show us a lot about what Shangoon and, frankly, the whole team actually can be. For right... Uh, you know, right or wrong, in Houston, you know, and, and I maybe it shouldn't say right or wrong. It's right and wrong. There were many games where Shengun was the problem on defense. There were other games where everybody else was the problem on defense, and Shengun still got blamed for it. Because yeah, he's not stopping anybody. Like he's not a rim protector in any way, shape, or form. But you got to give the poor guy a little bit of help. Then there might have been a game where they tried to give him a little bit of help, and he still got roasted. And so you got this. This blend where the team was sick of him not being able to stop anybody near the bucket. He was sick of the team not being able to keep anyone out of the paint in front of him. And then they just sucked. I think, and we'll see how this plays out. Again, draft dependent. I think Shengun, if no one comes in to take his job at center, should show some improvement at the free throw line. But I also worry a little bit that if the team does start to play a little bit better position defense, steals and blocks could potentially come down for him if he's not basically just being put on an island and folks are saying, please try to get a steal or block a shot. It's our only hope. Because he's back there and, you know, it's guards coming downhill right at him uh, with no help at all. That's the best way as a big man to pile up steals and blocks and fouls, but they all kind of come together. So do the Rockets get this type of thing squared away? Possibly. Do his points and rebounds change all that much? I doubt it. Do his assists change all that much? I doubt it. Do the threes change? He might start to shoot one or two more per game. I don't know. We'll see. Steals and blocks. I'm going to assume that they hold steady. I don't think that they go up unless if the team is really going to try to actually guard somebody. So the real hope for me on Shen is that the free throw percent improves. That's the thing you look at and you're like, this is the thing that could legitimately get better without anything else having to change around him. That's the thing he can fix himself. And if that goes from 71.5 to even 74, then he moves from that 80 to 90 range up into the where he was drafted this year, which is probably in the 60s. But I don't think the other stuff is moving all that much. I don't think they're about to just turn over the offensive keys to him. They're going to get somebody good in the draft, whether it's Weminyama or somebody else that's excellent that dude is going to get some measure of run-the-offense-control. The team was pretty good at... No, not pretty good. That's not fair. But not unwatchable down the stretch as Kevin Porter played a little bit more under control. So maybe that's a let him try a little bit more. And if Jabari Smith gets a little bit better... They had a stretch there where a bunch of guys were hurt, where Shangun was the last man standing and they kind of ran the offense through him. But I don't think that's going to be the case every ballgame. I fear that, and this is going to piss a lot of people off, but it's okay. This is It's my opinion. It's what I've seen by watching a ton of Rockets games and, and looking at just sort of the overall what is the makeup of this team and what is it going to be next year. We may have seen the best fantasy run from Shengun in his early Rockets tenure here, meaning I don't know where he's going to end up. Midway through his career. I don't know where the rest of these Rockets are going to end up. Maybe they end up pivoting back to him. like. But in this early part, that stretch between when he exploded against Thomas Bryan, I think that was late January or early February or something like that, he went on like a three-week run where he was a top-20 dude. That might be the best run we see out of him with this current iteration of the Rockets. Assuming guys stay mostly healthy next year. Because again, when... Uh, In particular, it was Kevin Porter that was out. But there were other, I think Jalen Green missed a couple of games at the same time as Porter. Other guys were largely, Eric Gordon, who was still on the team at that point, he missed a few ball games. They were like, all right, Shangun, you try running this thing. And he went just completely bananas for a few weeks. He and Christian Wood were going crazy at the same time, and then they both kind of fell off a cliff. Wood never got a finger hold on the cliff. At least Shangun kind of crawled his way back up and finished the year strong. So to wrap it all up on the Rockets' side before we take a look at what's going on in the NBA playoffs, Shengun, there's a chance I think he could get into the 60s next year. I doubt he gets beyond that. Kevin Porter Jr., probably a small step back given the expectation that another high-usage player gets pushed in the mix. Jabari Smith Jr. should be a little bit better next year but might still not crack the top 100. Jalen Green, I... Ugh. I, I I don't think I want anything to do with it. And then Tari Eason, I'm I'm kind of waiting to see what they what the plan is with him at the start of the year. But he's someone that I'd be looking at as kind of a end of draft flyer. All right, let's uh, turn the corner here and take a look at some of the uh, NBA playoff stuff tonight. You've got the Sixers in Brooklyn. The Kings are in Golden State in San Francisco. And the Suns are in Los Angeles to take on the Clippers. We got some game threes shifting venue now in the NBA. And so, what do we do with that? Well, we look at the most recent ball game these teams played. I believe this was two days off for the Sixers and the Nets. Yeah, they last went on Monday. Um, we were talking about pace before that ball game, and then it went way the heck under, as expected, because the first game had no pace at all, and it was just that the Sixers scored a bunch of points and it kind of answered the question very quickly of hey why did the total stay at like two whatever or even come down from it even though the last one was basically slightly over or right on the mark well then we got our answer now the total has really moved because the last one was at 212 first one was like 215 i think and this one's dropped all the way down to 208 so they've now set it at a really low number however Are we now finally getting close enough where it's worth looking back at the other side? The answer is, sort of. Games in the playoffs do tend to slow down as they go. But this game also has the feel of a, okay, we won the first two at home, says Philly. We go into Brooklyn. We probably don't have to go as full throttle as we have been. We think we might be able to just grab this next one without really going insane in our effort. Last ballgame had somewhere in the neighborhood of about, let's see, Brooklyn had about like 97, 98 possessions. Philly had like 107 because they out-rebounded them by 20 frickin' 3, but also turnover turnovered them by 10, so it, that helped level it off a little bit. Um, still a few more possessions on the Philly side. So, you know, that put the number around, what did I say, 206 possessions. And that was the way Philly wanted it. But now you shift to Brooklyn, where you know the Nets want to try to open it up a little bit. Can't, is that going to be enough to push this thing up and over the total? I, I'm not quite there yet. Uh, I think this number's probably pretty good, just from a speed of game standpoint. I think we're within four-ish points of where it ends up, and that's typically not enough for me to jump in on it. I think we might see this one tick under one more time, possibly before we get a rare over in this series, but I could very easily also see one team just getting a little warm and it getting to like 2 2-13, something like that. Um, Sixers also four-and-a-half point favorites on the road. I don't want anything to do with the side. I have no idea what's going to go on in the side in this ballgame. I think you're going to get a lot of... Uh, Sixers money with a line that seems low, but for a team that's up 2-0, you'll get sort of desperation, Brooklyn. Slight lean to the Nets to keep this one really tight, but man, I really was wishing that they'd get more than 4.5 points. At 5, five and a half, six would have been cool. I Expecting it to be that high? No, but hoping it was, that's different. So um, very slight lean to the over on the total, but I mean the tiniest ever. And then also equally small, lean to Brooklyn on the side. Kings-Warriors total is at 240 and a half. I would expect the Warriors to shoot the ball better in this game. They're a six-point favorite without Draymond Green. I still like the Kings, guys. I know that that's a little bit stupid, but I still like the Kings. Warriors are going to be desperate, but Warriors without Draymond Green are... They don't scare me. They didn't even really, really scare me with Draymond Green. We keep going back to the well on the Sacramento side. Uh, I expect the Warriors to shoot the ball a heck of a lot better, which means that the Kings are going to have to keep pace in this one. Uh, it's It screams of an over-type matchup, but at the same time, without Draymond on the short roll, we saw the Kings were blitzing Steph on pick-and-roll stuff, and that didn't leave a whole lot else. Warriors are going to need Jordan Poole to wake up in a big, big way in this ballgame, or they got no shot. Because without Draymond, defensively, and as a screen setter on offense, I mean, he's he's one of those guys where the line only moves like a one-point-ish when he's out, one, one and a half, but he's worth more than that to the Warriors. So as much as I think the Warriors have a decent shot to win this ballgame, because they are a lot better at home than they are on the road, the Kings are not about to fade here. Especially now with the whole world looking at this game, uh, and Twitter's just like, oh yeah, they're gonna NBA's gonna rig it for the Warriors. That's the that's the consensus right now. That's what the talking heads are saying. The talking heads are saying that this series is rigged in favor of the Kings. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. But it also does make betters look at the Warriors and say, Well, this is like they're not gonna go down 3-0, these are the Warriors. So there's just money coming in on Golden State. When are they really like a six-point home favorite without Draymond Green? Playoff home court is usually worth about four points. So they're right now they're telling us the Warriors are a two-point neutral side favorite without Draymond over the Kings. I just don't believe it. I think the Kings keep this ball game close. Could the Warriors open it up and win it by like seven, eight, nine points at the very end. Yeah, absolutely. But getting six in a game, I think, is going to be relatively tight. I like the Kings again. We'll go back to the well. We've been on the Kings each of the first two ball games and for the series so far. Uh, of course, again, if I think the Warriors are going to score, that means I think the ballgame should go over. I'm a little reticent to take the over, though, uh, without Draymond in the middle of that offense as the passing hub. So uh, I'll probably leave that alone. And then Suns, three-and-a-half-point favorites in L.A. taking on the Clippers. Did Phoenix figure something out in Game 2? Uh, I thought the Clippers would keep that ball game close. L.A. was actually up by a dozen early in that game. And then Devin Booker just went absolutely bananas. And sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. When a player goes crazy, you're just sort of at their mercy. And Booker was awesome. 38 points on 22 shots you know Kevin Durant was was solid but they sort of didn't need it. Torrey Craig was very very good. Chris Paul was excellent. Phoenix needed that ball game and Booker went and got him that ball game. I don't think Phoenix can shoot 59% again, but also they do have two of the better offensive players in the NBA right now. So, you know, maybe they can shoot 59% again. Um I think it's going to be a close one in LA. So uh, hard for me to take either side, because you're really not getting that many points on the underdog. If you think the Suns win it, you probably just lay the three and a half and assume that they can handle that at the end. But uh, that's where I'm at. I probably would lean Suns, but I don't know that I really like it. Total of 226 after the last one went way over. Not way over, I guess. Total was 227 and a half and after the first one and i'll admit i got this one wrong because the first ball game between these two teams that was on what sunday was right on the post total of 225 and that was with the uh the pace pretty damn high i don't remember what the hell did i say about this ball game i actually don't remember what i said well we can go all the way back to that sunday game i think the the total was 225 and i believe the pace was pretty close to that as well 92 108 and change 109 possessions on one side 106 plus 15 121 how did the clippers end up with that many possessions 101 106 yeah so it was pretty it was pretty close to like 226 ish and i thought that maybe the game would slow down um it's gonna slow down (laughs) clippers want this to be slower um, I think this is probably your opportunity to jump in on the under in this series, Phoenix, LA. Uh, Cause the last one was 232 with the suns shooting 59%. And the two teams again, combining for a pretty damn high free throw number 45 between the two of them free, you know, turnovers were relatively low. Both teams made all of their free throws. You know, there's going to come a game in this series where the teams are less efficient on offense Clippers had about 110-ish possessions in this ballgame, so they scored basically right on that number. Suns, um, the, you know, number of possessions for Phoenix was was not all that high. Uh, I think it was in the, like, 103-104 range. So, you know, I think we can expect this one to have more like 215 to 220 possessions, and with the total at 216, that does give you a little bit of wiggle room on an under. So I kind of like the Suns. I kind of like the under in that third game. I like the I think I like the Kings uh hard for me to to do the total on the the middle game and then um in the early one yeah I got I got no feel on that early one maybe an ever so slight tick to the over but yeesh I, yeah no. no thank you <laughs> kindly I shall pass okay well I almost talked about Jabari Smith twice on today's show but overall I think I did okay. Uh, thanks for hanging out, everybody. This was your Thursday edition of Fantasy NBA Today. I'm not 100% sure what we're doing tomorrow on the podcast. Figure it out over the course of today. Ah, the beauty of the off season. The beauty of the offseason. That means I can do what I want when I want. Thanks to you live viewers on YouTube. I know there's a handful of you that are still hanging out with us here, even though it's uh, not immediately impacting your, uh, your fantasy team. And for that, I am grateful for everybody over on the recorded side. Come hang with us in the Discord. Talk to me on Twitter, at Dan Vesperus, whatever moves you. And come try out the Wager Pass for 75% off right now. And also, good luck on uh, Twitter. <laughs> now the blue check marks are gone. Good luck on Twitter. We'll figure it out. Don't worry. We'll all figure it out together snide though we may all be we'll figure it out together so long for now everybody we'll catch you on the other side